1, verses 1 through 17, and you can find it in the Bibles under your seat on page 807. Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. And Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadak, and Zadak the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were fourteen generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, fourteen generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, fourteen generations. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. It's, uh, it's good to be with you this morning. I, I'm, I'm grateful for a lot of things this morning. Grateful to be a part of, of this church. Uh, I think grateful most of all that Dan had to read all of those names. I think that's... <laughs> he was practicing all week, I know. Um, but it is uh, it's a privilege to, to be with you this morning um, and to open up uh, Matthew's gospel. I realize that, you know, as a seminary prof and you know, someone fascinated with the genealogies, and I'm kind of ticking off all the nerd boxes, you know, feeling all the stereotypes of a professor. But hopefully as we walk through this, this genealogy this morning, it will, it will set us up for a, a wonderful season of, of uh, spending time in, in the Gospel of, of Matthew. A growing number of people are are disillusioned with democracy. I don't know if you've uh, noticed, but there have been a number of books and articles recently that have expressed the idea that maybe democracy isn't the best form of government after all. 
Um, just last week, I read a, a review of a book called Against Democracy. He argues that democracy is not the best form of government. It's only the best of all of the forms of government that have been tried so far. I think perhaps it has had to do with some of the cataclysms of Brexit. Some would argue the 2016 elections uh, here in our own country Maybe the, the will of the people expressed in a democratic vote. Maybe that does always lead to the best, the, best form, the best form of government. And it isn't simply because democracy itself, can, democracy can undo itself. You know, this is the classic sort of problem with democracy. Sort of one man, one vote, one time. You know, that's it. You know, they vote them, you know, somebody into power and that person never never leaves. But it's also because um, in many societies, the will of the people often produces conditions, circumstances that exploit the vulnerable, that lead to oppression. It's one of the reasons I think after, you know, we spent 24 years as missionaries in, uh, in, in Africa, particularly in Ethiopia, and we noticed that it, it's, it's it's taken a long time for, for democracy to take root. And one of the reasons, perhaps, for that is this fear that, that a democratic election will only and always ensure the domination of the dominant ethnic group. See, the problem with government of the people, by the people, and for the people is the people. But what really are our options? Winston Churchill famously quipped that democracy is the worst form of government except all the others that have been tried. No one is suggesting that we revert back to the time before we had democracy, go back to the days before democracy when every nation for virtually all of human history lived under, under kings, lived under kingship. And I think we sometimes forget this, that prior to the American Revolution, the whole of human history had only known basically one form of government. The founders of this nation were very much aware that what they were trying to do, the experiment that they undertook in forming the first democracy, was to establish a government without kingship. And they would have been the first to admit that it was an experiment, Kingship, in their minds, had only and ever been used to exercise tyranny. And the most damning criticism in the early years of our nation was to be dubbed a royalist or a monarchist, someone who was, you know, sort of secretly harbored hopes that, that America would one day be formed as a, as, as, under kingship. And Thomas Jefferson, he hated the fact that some people started referring to George Washington, the first president's first president as his excellency. He was, he was afraid that this would mark the, the return of, of monarchy, of kingship. He sympathized with the French philosopher Voltaire, who, who famously longed for the day when the last king would be strangled with the entrails of the last priest. And Voltaire pretty much got his wish in the, in the, in the French Revolution. And in France, and then in America, and then in France, and then subsequently many, many other countries, kingship has fallen away. And even where the titles remain, 
the, you know, the, the absoluteness of the king's rule, that kingship itself has become sim- simply symbolic. So however disenchanted we may be with democracy, no one is suggesting that we appoint a king. Little girls may still marry, you know, dream of marrying princes. Princes, uh, you know, sort of like what we've seen in the news this week with the American Meghan Markle, you know, sort of all the news coverage, even here in America, where we hate kings. You know, everybody's covering this, this, this whirlwind romance. If Americans know anything, it's that kings are tyrants, and kingship in anything but a ceremonial form is simply ridiculous. If you have a little girl, tell her princes are okay, but watch out for kings. They're tyrants. All in all, it's best to keep the kings in the fairy tales. The first readers of Matthew's gospel, I think, um, had certainly experienced more than their fair share of, of tyranny. But they never dreamed Voltaire's dream. They never dreamed of a world without kings. In, in fact, what they dreamed of was a, was a day in which a new kind of king would come. A world ruled by a, a new sort of king. Not a world without kings, but a, wor- a, a world ruled by a different kind of king. And what they believed beyond doubts, what the prophets told them, what the scriptures told them, is when that new king came... He would bring with them, he would form a new kind of people. A new king, a new kind of king, and a new kind of people. And however odd it may seem for Matthew to begin his gospel with, with a long list of names, such as the one we've, that Dan's just read, this is the claim, I think, that this genealogy is making, that Jesus comes as a new kind of king, for a new kind of people. Let's look at that. Let's think about that for a moment. First of all, Matthew introduces us to Jesus as a new kind of king. One of the most common functions of, of genealogies was to legitimate priestly or kingly lines. And this, this genealogy is no different. In a rich variety of ways, the genealogy is making the point that this is a credible, legitimate king. And he goes about this in a couple of ways. He, first of all, makes the point that that this is the ideal king. And he does this by evoking the memory of of King David. In fact, David's name is mentioned five times in, in this genealogy. The genealogy begins by conferring on him the title, Son of David. And that title is going to come up in a number of places in Matthew's Gospel. Moreover, the, the whole genealogy is arranged in three tables of 14 names. Matthew tells us that that's what he's done. Why? Why has he done that? Why 14 names? Well, one of the reasons, and we'll see a little bit later, that in order to get the 14-14-14 scheme, he's had to miss out a few names. He's obviously invested in this scheme of 14 names. Why 14? The most probable answer is that in in Hebrew, as in a lot of languages still today, they don't have a separate numbering system. Their letters were their numbers. And the numerical equivalents of David's name add up 
to 14. That's probably why he's, why he's done this. So in addition to mentioning David's name more than any other name, he's kind of built into the whole scheme a kind of subtle riddle, an illusion that invites us to see this is about David. This is about the son of David. This is about the ideal of kingship. Well, why was David the ideal? And a couple of things I think stand out, especially when you look at, at the genealogy in relation to the, whole, to the whole of Matthew's gospel. The first thing that stands out is that David and the ideal king was a lover of the law. You think, lover of the law? Hmm. Deuteronomy 17 um, gives us kind of the law of the king, the ideal for kingship within Israel. And the king essentially was given one job in Israel. And when he sits upon his throne, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of the law. And it shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life. That was his job. To copy out the law. The first thing that he was to do when he took the throne was to make a copy of the law. And to live with it, to keep it with him, to read it every day. That was his whole job. And that's exactly how the Old Testament describes David. He loved the law. Later kings were evaluated by the degree to which, like David, they followed the law. In Psalm 19, David declares that to him, the law is is sweeter than honey and more precious than gold. The Ethiopian emperor, you know, according to, to legend, one of the Ethiopian emperors died after eating too many pages of Scripture because he was kind of literally interpreting, you know, sort of this understanding of kingship in the Old Testament, you know, to, to be a consumer of the law, to eat the law. And that's how Matthew portrays Jesus. As you read through the gospel, you realize that, that Jesus loves the law. Now, Jesus rejects any notion that his rejection of the Pharisees understanding the law, the the Pharisees' way of treating the law, constitutes in and of itself rejection of the law. He says, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill the law. So Jesus may have hated what the Pharisees did with the law, but he loved the law. The epitome of the law, according to Jesus, is to love your neighbors as yourself. Then Jesus loves his brothers, his sisters. He loves his neighbors, even to the point of laying down his life for them. This week we've seen, over the last few weeks, we've seen an avalanche of sexual harassment charges. One, uh, and one of the things that, that people have, have commented on is the fact that these charges have led to the, you know, almost to the immediate downfall of figures in the entertainment industry, in media. But politicians, not so much. Why is that? Why can these scandals take down media figures, but not the politicians? You see, the thing, that, the thing about political power is that those who have it begin to see themselves as somehow outside of the law. They make the laws. They're not under the laws. One of the reasons that our our trust in politicians is is at an all-time low, and we've had such a a wave of of populism, is that 
in many cases, the leaders seem sort of cut off from the impact of the laws that they make on ordinary people. But the ideal king, the the son of David kind of king, he's not like that. He loves the law. He takes the law unto himself. He shows his people how to take up a yoke that he describes as easy and a burden that is light. He loves the law. But the, the Davidic king was also the ideal king because he was a shepherd. Remember what David was before he came uh, to kingship. He was just an ordinary shepherd. And that became in Israel kind of paradigm, a model for ideal, ideal kingship. Samuel anoints him as king, not because he's impre- physically impressive the way that his predecessor Saul had been. He anoints him apparently because God has chosen David as a shepherd. That will be very important in Matthew's gospel in three different places in the gospel. He will refer to to Jesus, the son of David, as a shepherd. Most notably in in chapter chapter 9 where Jesus looks at the people with with compassion because he sees that they they were like sheep without a shepherd. Everywhere in Matthew's gospel that, that people cry out to Jesus for compassion. They cry out to, to Jesus for mercy. Have mercy on us. What do they add? Son of David. You see, they're appealing to the Davidic ideal in which this ideal king treated the people with mercy and with compassion. One of the most widely noted features of our contemporary public life is just how rough and brutal it has has become. I'm sure you've all noticed it. Um, And there's there's a sense which this is is surprising culturally, because as one commentator put it, um, you might have thought that, you know, with the melting away of of a kind of shared moral framework, in his words, we'd all become blandly non-judgmental. You might have thought that's what would have happened. Sort of chill, these are his words, pluralistic versions of Snoop Dogg. You do you, and I'll do me, and we'll all be cool about it. But that's not what happened. Instead, society has become a free-form demolition derby of moral confrontation. The cold-eyed fanaticism of students on campuses nationwide, the the rage of the alt-right, holy wars over transgender bathrooms, the furious intensity at every town hall meeting on every subject, or the comments section on just about any blog or Facebook page. Quite unexpectedly, the sense of moral pressure hasn't gone away. It's increased. We've not only lost our sense of of sin, we've not lost our sense of sin. We've not lost our sense of moral wrong. But absent this shared moral framework, what we've lost instead is mercy. In a culture starved of mercy... Jesus comes as the merciful shepherd king. But he's not only the ideal king in the genealogy, he's also 
and this is important, the last king. You know, it's the other title that Jesus has given. He's given the title Christ, sort of the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah. And that's what the Christ means. It's what it means in the Old Testament. What it means, it's what it means for Matthew. It's not just the, that he would be the ideal king, but he would be the final king. Now, the expectation of a, of a final king, it seems to have emerged in, in prophetic tradition just as sort of the, the cutting off of kingship from Israel was a, just appearing on the horizon. That is just before the time of the exile when the kingship would be cut and all the kings and the people as well would be sent to Babylon, to sent into exile. And Matthew seems very much aware that that has happened. But if the exile was a problem within Israel, I suspect that the cutting off of the Davidic kingship was even more. And the reason is, it goes back to a promise that we meet uh, in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel chapter 7, when David takes the throne. And God's promise to David is that he would never lack for a descendant on the throne. That a Davidic king, would, his, his throne would be established, and these are Samuel's words, forever. That seemed to be God's promise to David. And then when the exile comes and kingship is cut off and there is no Davidic descendant on the throne, you can imagine that that's not simply a political problem. That's a problem that threatens the faith of the people of God. It's in the wake of that exile and just in the lead up to that exile that the prophets begin to anticipate how it is that God could possibly be faithful to that promise, even though kingship was going to end with the exile. It's a big problem. Israel, during the time of kingship, had always had two kings. It had always been the case that God was the king. Of course, God was the king. But then you had the Davidic king, the human king, and the And the Davidic king was supposed to be the one who represented God, represented the will of God to the people. Of course, as we know, that so rarely took took place. There was always a kind of a huge differential between God's kingship and the kingship of the human king. But what Matthew seems to be suggesting, what the prophets anticipated, is that something is sort of extraordinary. It's the fact that, that with the termination of kingship, there's a kind of an identification of, of the kingship in Jerusalem with God's own kingship. God takes Davidic kingship into himself. And so when we get to the end of this genealogy in chapter 16, and even more, more clearly in verse, in verse 16, and then more clearly in verse 18, when this virgin gives birth to a child, conceived by the Holy Spirit. We see the fusion of those two understandings of kingship, the fusion of divine kingship and human kingship, so that there's only one king. This prepares us for the moment in which Matthew's theology of kingship becomes most profound. You see, at the end of, it's at the end of the gospel where Jesus is is dressed in royal robes, and he's given a crown. 
He's given the title of king. But strangely, all of this happens as he's mocked, as he's humiliated, as he's, as he's crucified. And yet, the centurion stands at the foot of the cross and says, this is the Son of God. This is the true king. This is the one in whom divine kingship and human kingship are alike manifest. You see, Voltaire longed for the death of the king as the death of the last king. He thought that was the the great hope of the people because it would mean the end of kingship. But Matthew narrates the death of the last king also as the great hope of the people. Not because he knows that that's the moment when kingship ends, but because he sees the crucifixion, the death of the king, as the moment when kingship begins. You see, the fact that the king emerges from the obscurity of this, this, of the third table of this genealogy, all these names are of people who are lost to history. The fact that he emerges from the obscurity of the third table prepares us to see that this is a new kind of king. He's a king, as the church fathers described him, who reigns from a cross. That's a new kind of king. A new kind of king, but also a king who forms a new kind of people. And that's the second thing that I think Matthew points us to in this this genealogy. You see, genealogies are not just about credentials. They tell us who you are. Now, not long ago, I read about a Somali. We lived in Ethiopia. Somalia was the, Somalia was the country next door. And Somalis could, could tell you the names of their ancestors back 30 generations. In other words, your father's name was your second name, and your grandfather's name was your third name, and your fourth name was your, you know, was your great-grandfather's name, and so on and so on, back 30 generations. They knew them. And it's important to them because it tells them who they are. It's a real problem on applications when they move to America, you know. You ask for your middle name, what do you want, the 15th one? Or, you know, right? You know, going all the way back, I'll give you 30th, the 30th name, my great, 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 great grandfather as, as my last name. They tell us who we, are, who we are. They tell us something about where we came from, what we're like. And the genealogy of kings was even more that way. You see, if you read the Old Testament books of the kings and of the chronicles, they're not, they're not really histories of Israel. Well, they are, but they're really just history of kings. Because in these, in these histories of kings, we have the history of the people. It's as if the, the, the identity of the people is taken up in the identity of the king. As the king goes... So goes the people. There's no exception, really, in the whole of the Old Testament. Whatever the king does, the people do the same thing. This picture, this genealogy, then, serves for us as not just a picture of the Messiah, but as a picture of Messiah's people. Well, if this is a picture of the Messianic people, what kind of people are they? 
And here's where we have to pay attention to some of the details in the genealogy. Because even though, as, as, as Dan read it, it can sound like, well, this person begat that person, begat that person, begat that person. It's a kind of a straight line, a linear kind of genealogy, by and large. But there are a few little extra bits that Matthew throws in there. And those little extra bits are where the genealogy breaks from type. It's where it breaks the form. It's important for us to understand what he's doing with those, with those bits. We see, for instance, that quite unusually, he, he refers to four different women. Perhaps you caught it when, as, as, he was, as he was reading through the genealogy. The unexpected inclusion of figures like, like Tamar and Rahab and the wife of Uriah recalls some of the most horrible incidents in Israel's history. In other words, the portrait of the Messianic people includes a prostitute saved from destruction in Jericho. It includes Judah, who sleeps with the woman who he believes to be a shrine prostitute and turns out to be his daughter-in-law. It includes this Messianic people, the story of the, the sexual aggression of, believe it or not, the ideal king, David, toward the wife of one of his most loyal commanders and his subsequent arrangement for that commander to be murdered to cover up her pregnancy. See, one of the great tragedies of the evangelical movement in America is that we've somehow gained the reputation that we think we're better than everyone else. Ouch. Doubtless, that claim has some basis in reality. But the genealogy tells us something different. The scriptures tell us something different. It tells us that we're not, in fact, better. In fact, we may be worse. And that's why we need the gospel. Just look at our pedigree. Here it is, right here on the pages of the, uh, of the genealogy. All we can do is find ourselves echoing the words of Wesley in the hymn, how can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's love? This is my people. This is me. Secondly, one thing that's, that ancient genealogies were frequently used for was to demonstrate the ethnic purity of a people. The racial purity of a people. But this genealogy subverts that. Now it's evident from the inclusion of, of Tamar and Rahab, Canaanite women. Uriah, a Hittite. Ruth from Moab, a Moabite. But it's evident also from where the genealogy begins. It begins with Abraham, and it evokes the promise that God had made to Abraham that in him all the families of the earth would find blessing. The gospel that begins with the genealogy that originates with Abraham will also end with the commission of disciples to make disciples of every nation. See, one of the striking things about this genealogy is that it's plainly a a Jewish genealogy. 
But as a, as a picture of the Messianic people, the genealogy subverts all notions that simply being Jewish will guarantee a place among the people, among the Messianic people. You see, our age is marked by identity politics. It's been true on the left for a long time, and now it's true also on the right. And these, the far left and the, and the far right are all sort of influenced by this kind of this global rise in ethno, ethno-nationalism. But Matthew's vision casts, Matthew's genealogy casts a, a, a vision for a people that breaks from this sort of fragmented way of looking at the life, fragmented way of looking at society. It breaks from the sort of the divisive assertion that one culture is dominant over any other culture. As we were coming in, I was remarking to, to, to someone that for, for much of the 24 years in, that we lived in Ethiopia, we went to church where we were kind of you know, one of the few white people there. And it sort of disabuses you of any sort of sense that, that you were the one including others. We felt like we were being included. And that's Matthew's message, that none of us are, you know, constitute the dominant culture who are sort of having this large enough heart to include a few others who aren't like us. We've all been included. This is not because of our people, our church, in which we let a few other people in. This is Messiah's people, and we've all been let in. We all have to see ourselves as Christ's people to which none of us have a right, but in which all of us have been given a place. So it is a, a sinful people, but, but saved. It's a racially or ethnically impure people, but it's also a people that is refined by judgment. It's re- people refined by judgment. I mentioned before that, that Matthew had kind of left out some names. And you might think that he's, you know, he's just trying to get the scheme to work. You know, the 14-14-14 scheme? But if you, if you compare this genealogy to the source in First Chronicles, you'll see that there's, it's not just entirely random. That the names that he has omitted, there's, there seems to be something that kind of holds them together. He omits them in sets of three. So, for instance, in the second table, Jehoram, there's three names in a row that are omitted. It's odd that Joram, was, for rebellion against God, is cursed with a disease in his loins. And that carries down three generations. Those three kings are omitted. Interesting, too, that at the end of the second table, Jeconiah and his brothers? Well, Jeconiah only had one brother. But the end of 2 Chronicles refers to three other kings, all his relatives who all occupied the throne. One of them is referred to as his brother, even though it's his uncle. It's his brother king. These three brother kings are just like Jeconiah, sent off into exile. Doesn't mention their names. In the first table, we got something similar going on. You have this peculiar doubling. It's the only place that it happens. The father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Why does he mention the one brother? 
possibly to flag the fact that there were three other brothers. Two of him were, the, the book of Genesis says, were killed by the Lord because of their rebellion. The other one just simply disappears. Six names. Two sets of three omitted after Zerubbabel in the third, third table. The names were there for Matthew to use. He simply leaves them out because they disappeared from history. Why? Because this people that he's describing is not, it's not just this multicultural, multi-ethnic, sinful but saved people, but it's also a people that has experienced divine judgment. In other words, the final form of God's people is a people that has undergone this sort of purifying, purging, and, and refinement that comes with judgment. This is a people formed not just by the unexpected inclusions that we've read about. It's also formed by tragic deletions. As God judges those who turn away from him. We live in a culture in which people are turning away from, from God in historic numbers. A recent Gallup poll uh, indicated that the nuns, those who indicate that the, their religious identity is none, um, that they are the, the most rapidly increasing group in, in our country at the, at the moment. Um, in fact, that phenomenon has been so striking to us as we've come back into the, to the culture. I've sort of started praying on a regular basis um, for, for friends, I know. Many of them missionaries or pastors or, or seminary profs whose, whose children have left the church, who've become nuns. And it reminds us, I mean, it's heartbreaking, and it reminds us that, that our responsibility as a church to those who are still sticking with it, and some of you may feel that you're just kind of barely hanging on, is to keep warning one another, to keep encouraging one another, as the book of Hebrews, Hebrews says, to, and to warn one another of the danger of turning away. We have to see that the problem is not just that our culture has rejected a Christian way of life. The problem is that it undermines even the plausibility, the underlying plausibility structures of faith. It doesn't even make sense for many, to many people to believe. And as people turn away, this genealogy warns us the frightening prospect of divine judgment. But there's one other thing that I think Matthew wants us, to, wants us to see in this new kind of people. This people, and we see this particularly in the, the, these added in names, particularly the women, are often described in their Old Testament context who, who are righteous by faith, or at least righteous by comparison with, with Israel. So Tamar, after the, her sin with, or after Judah has gone into her, she's veiled herself. And Judah is about to, because he finds out his, his daughter-in-law is pregnant. And he knows it wasn't from one of his sons because he's withheld his sons from her. When it becomes clear that he's the father, he says to her, Surely she was more righteous than I. 
And Ruth, as we read her story, she appears as one much more filled with faith, much more righteous, even as a Moabitess, than her mother-in-law, Naomi. Or Uriah, a Hittite, more righteous than David. Or the prostitute, Rahab, who acts righteously in faith and is incorporated into the people of God, given her own allotment of land in the book of Joshua. You see, throughout Matthew, Matthew Jesus commends people who, who didn't have necessarily have Abraham's blood running through their veins, but he had a, they had Abraham's faith kind of pulsing in their hearts. So the centurion... In chapter 8, Jesus says, I've not seen such faith in all of Israel. Many will come from east and west and sit on a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the sons of the kingdom, the ones who lack faith, will be left out. Or Jesus' words to the Canaanite woman in chapter 15, where he says, your faith is greater than all that I've seen in Israel. So be to it as you have wished. Even as she confesses that there's abundant blessing, far more than enough for Israel. It's enough for all of us Gentiles too, she says to him. After the most recent election, um, crowds of people flooded into the streets chanting and carrying signs that said, not my president. I'm sure the same thing happened when the previous president was uh, was elected. We hate the idea, maybe this is a kind of an American thing, but we hate the idea that someone whose, whose views and politics and policies and personality that we dislike, that that person should be regarded as our representative, that we should have to be identified with him in the eyes of the world. We want to speak for ourselves. We want to define our own identities. We want to say who we are. But Matthew, Matthew invites us to, to give up this quest to, to define our identity in a way that leaves us simply as part of these ever-shrinking groups cut off from everyone else and ultimately cut off from God himself. Sure, we can look at the crucified Jesus and say, not my king. Not my king. Plenty of people did. Plenty of people do. But the alternative is so much better. The alternative is to see in this strange list of names a kind of invitation. An invitation to be a new kind of people who follow a new kind of king. And so, it might be fitting that Matthew ends his genealogy with a kind of question mark. I mentioned before that Matthew has divided his genealogy into three tables of 14 names. In verse 17, he tells us, tells us that that's what he's done. In the first table, you have 14 names. In the second table, you have 14 names all the way to the exile. And then he tells us that we have 14 names, 14 generations, that is, from the exile to Jesus. Except you don't. There's only 13 there. 
you can count them, you know, later this afternoon, you're not having anything to do, just, you know, count them out. And some have said, well, Matthew might be a great theologian, but he's lousy at math, because he misses a generation here. And there's a related puzzle. He seems to have wanted to, to build kind of symmetry, balance between these three tables. So in the first table, to kind of mark the, the, the formation of Israel, at its very beginning, he refers to Judah and his brothers. He had 11 brothers. With Judah, there's 12. The 12 represented Israel at its founding. And then the second table, there's also a reference to brothers, to Jeconiah and his brothers. I mentioned them before. At the time of the nation's dissolution, nation's formation, Judah and his brothers. Nation's dissolution, Jeconiah and his brothers. But there's no reference to brothers in the third table. It's as if Matthew has intentionally created a a riddle, a puzzle. And he wants his readers to kind of figure it out. To figure it out by reading the gospel. He gives us a little bit of a hint at the answer to this riddle. As the pages of the, as we turn through the pages of the gospel. First of all, he, he has this sort of running rhetoric against this generation. It's the faithless generation. The generation that he says has turned away from God. And so if the question posed at the end of the genealogy is, who's the final generation? Who is this final messianic people? The answer of Matthew's gospel is, it's not this generation. Not the generation that failed to believe. Then in chapter 12, he says, you know, his family members come to him and they want to take custody of him. And Jesus points to his disciples, it says, and says, these are my brothers and, and sisters and mother. This is my family. This is my people. But he never addresses the twelve that way until the last chapter. In the last chapter, for the very, very first time, the angel meets the two women outside the tomb, and she said, "Go and tell the, the angel tells the two women, go and tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. And so they're running. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to do. And then they meet the resurrected Jesus on the road. And he tells them exactly the same thing that the women have told that the angel has told the women. They were already going to do it. What's the point of the duplication? There's one thing new. Jesus says, go and tell my brothers. That's the first time that he addresses the 11. The 12 throughout throughout the gospel. The 12 have represented this new people. But now Judas has fallen away. Judas whose name is simply the English, you know, we say Judas, but it's the English form of Judah. Now Jesus takes his place. The lion of the tribe of Judah with his 11 brothers. The king with his brothers. And the response to him as they meet him in Galilee is to worship him. To worship him. And to receive his commission To go to all the world. To make disciples. Disciples who will teach the nations to to obey everything that he has commanded them. So that the nations too can be included in this messianic people. 
a people made righteous by faith. A new kind of king for a new kind of people. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for this, this message, this word that speaks powerfully to us about this new king, an ideal king, but not just the ideal, the, the last one. We pray that we would not miss him. And especially in this Advent season, that we would not, we would not miss him. We would not fail to, to treat him as king over, over everything, to imitate him in his love for the law to imitate his mercy, to be the merciful people of a merciful shepherd, to be people who recognize that we are horribly sinful, set apart only by your grace. We pray, Father, that as we, we live and lean into the, the ideal of this new people articulated for us in the pages of this genealogy that you would enable us to be that people. Not for our sake, we pray, but for your sake. Amen.